0: Welcome to Voice for Choice Podcast, the podcast that focuses on China issues with special attention to the Central and Eastern European perspective. After a little break, we are back with a new season. I am your new host, Karany Metkova. Joining me today will be Dr. Ivana Karaskova. She is a China analyst at Association for International Affairs, where she leads international projects, map influence, and China observers in Central and Eastern Europe. Choice. Since 2020, She has been a European-China Policy Fellow at Merix. Ivana holds PhD in International Relations and other university degrees in Journalism and Mass Communication, European Studies and International Relations. She completed research and study stays in China, Taiwan and United States, where she was a Fulbright Scholar at Columbia University. She is a member of China Expert Pool at the European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats in Helsinki. We will be discussing her latest policy paper on tech transfers from China. Ivana, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hello, Kara. Thanks for having me. So before we
0: delve into the details of your policy paper, I would like to start on a lighter note and ask you one or two questions. When you came to China, what was your first impression of the country?
1: Hmm... Well, my first encounter with the Chinese world in general was when I studied in Taiwan. So that's not the mainland China. And studying in Taiwan was very, very pleasant and, and um, non-complicated for me. So I expected that it would be probably similar when I started to study in um, in China. I studied at Fudan University in Shanghai. Um, I could not be more wrong. So I was quite surprised by the fast pace of everything happening in China, Um, you know, shops disappear from one day to another, you have another shop, people basically move, it's a constant flow of information, constant flow of people and things happening really. Um, And the sheer size of China also surprised me coming from a relatively small country of 10 million population. Of course, I didn't expect to be surrounded by people all the time. So even if you go running, as I did at 2 a.m. in the morning, I still met people running with me. So it was quite, quite uh, an intensive experience. And I went through a reverse cultural shock when I arrived back to the Czech Republic. I felt scared that there is actually no one in the streets. Do
0: you remember um, what what was the moment when you decided to focus on
1: China professionally and um, follow that track? It was more than 20 years ago, but if I do recall correctly, it was a rational choice for me. It was not something I always wanted to do. I actually always wanted to study India, so that, that was different, uh, quite quite a different things, and I even applied to, to study um, the Indology when I was young. But Um, I studied international relations um, and at one point of the time I decided that I have to have a specialization, I have to focus on something. I didn't want to focus on the European Union because it felt so complicated. I didn't want to focus on the United States because for me it was boring. It was before Trump, so it was boring (laughs) actually. Um, I didn't want to study Latin America because I don't speak Spanish. Um, I was a little bit afraid of Africa so i ruled that out that out as well so i was left basically with asia and austria uh, australia is too far away so with with asia and i looked at the map and i thought okay i tried um studying studying indology i didn't succeed so maybe i will rule out um india russia was not of interest to me for specific historical reasons so the biggest part on, on the map was China. So I just basically decided, okay, I will go for China and see what, what would happen. And, and then I started to read about China and study China and focus on Chinese language. And I was hooked because it was so very different and so sometimes incomprehensible. So, and that you know took me to China studies and I stayed in the field for the past 20 years. <music>
0: So the study titled, How to do Trusted Research, China's Specific Guidelines for European Stakeholders, was put together by you and your colleagues at Association for International Affairs. What was the initial idea behind this report? Why did you decide to tackle the
1: issue of STI protection and knowledge security? You're absolutely right, Kara. It's not my paper. It's basically a collaborative report. Uh, which was put together by Philip Shebok, uh, he's our sinologist, and by Veronika Blablova, she's a data analyst. And that has been quite a long time project. We started thinking about it basically in 2020, but perhaps even further before. Um, and the idea came from this feeling that there is a lot of downplaying of China's cooperation with Central and Eastern European countries. Um the usual response by the local researchers, not only in the Czech Republic but generally in the whole region, was that there is nothing to steal here. China is not interested in corpor- cooperation. but we have seen evidences on a number of cases um, basically proving that China has been interested in s- several pockets, let's say of excellence of the of the local research. So we started to first interview researchers, asking them, what is the real impact of cooperation with China? What is the real scope of cooperation with China? And we have received a number of puzzling responses, really, from downplaying uh, by the local researchers towards other researchers who are saying that actually the cooperation is quite fruitful, that it, China actually benefits in a number of areas. And we have done also interviews with members of security community who said that um China is actually very much ingrained in the local science and technology sector. So that's basically informed our thinking about what to do and how to approach um, the topic of scientific cooperation between central European countries and China. But we decided to basically apply a reverse logic. We didn't want to start with the researchers, as we did actually already in 2020 and uh, 2021. But we started from China. So we looked at what it is that China actually wants to get abroad because it can't produce it domestically. And we focused specifically on areas of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, so STEM subjects. So we compiled, let's say, a wish list of Chinese technologies. And then we looked at other countries with a hypothesis that most likely the most advanced countries are going to apply some kind of mitigation strategies, some kind of barriers in terms of export controls, investment screening mechanisms, uh, visa restrictions towards Chinese researchers and students. And then we zoomed into Central Europe, thinking what kind of mitigation measures Central European universities and research centers are applying towards science cooperation with China. What was the working
0: hypothesis that you had coming into the process What did you expect you were going to find and was it really what you found in the end?
1: Well, we (laughs) didn't have a working hypothesis. We are basically just doing a basic research, I would say, because nobody else, as far as I'm I'm aware of, did a similar research or apply a similar logic, really focusing first on China, coming up with the, the list of technologies and then looking at specifically where the cooperation in those subjects um, which are encompassing artificial intelligence, for example, uh, neuroscience, um, deep uh, sea, polar and space research, quantum computing, and so on. So whether there is actually a real material cooperation uh, between China and these countries. Um, and we did found a lot of um, <laughs> real concrete results of cooperation and that surprised us. We thought that we would find you know, pockets of excellence, that China may be interested in one or two subject areas, but we didn't actually think that China would be interested in all of the areas we looked into. Why do you think the local actors downplay the attractiveness
0: of Central Europe? As you said, uh, they think that there is nothing to steal here.
1: Well, I think that it probably stems from the approach towards science in general in Central and Eastern European countries, that they have this natural tendency, I would say, unfortunate natural tendency, to basically look at the achievements um, in various areas, not only in science and technology, but let's say political or economic achievements with um, a lot of, of grain of salt, to put it very diplomatically. So that's the mental setting, I would say. And the second part probably is that there is no, there has not been any mapping done on such a level as we did, which would basically show that there is a problem and the problem is actually quite grave. And it is not a problem which would just start recently. Our data shows that there is an increasing cooperation between China and Central European countries in the area of science and technology, especially in crucial technologies, over the past 15 years, so since 2006. Across the three countries that you looked at,
0: where was the most cooperation that you observed, and in what kind of areas? I know you also looked at the number of Chinese PhD students. Can you tell us a little bit more about these
1: numbers and what they mean? Well, open source data mining led to the identification of researchers in STEM subjects with Austrian or Czech or Slovak affiliations. Um, whose research outputs were co-funded by China. So sometimes fully funded, sometimes partially funded. And we have found that the most intensive cooperation in STEM areas was actually with the uh, researchers with the Austrian affiliation. About 685 research outputs in key scientific areas, which declared exclusive funding from Chinese sources, were published in Austria. 203 research outputs were published in Czech Republic and 41 outputs in Slovakia. So mainly the cooperation focused on the fields of development of new materials, agriculture, smart manufacturing and robotics. Um, And it has been, as I said, quite constantly increasing. When you talk about the PhD students, we do not have specific data for PhD students in STEM subjects. So the data we were uh, able to pull were the data for all PhD students. But nevertheless, the trend is quite visible that since 2006, the number of PhD students, Chinese PhD students, enrolling in Austrian, Czech and Slovak universities has been rising on a quite significant level as well. What we found probably the most problematic is not only that there is a cooperation between local researchers, um, but the fact that that cooperation has been, as I said, partially or fully funded by China, so, dozens of Chinese funding agencies in both the national and provincial level provided funding for scientific research. And most problematically, perhaps, several research projects were financed by Thousand Talents Programme. That's a recruiting scheme for foreign nationals, in specifically in key technology areas for which China help, hopes to benefit. And we have also found a one research output which declared funding from the Central Military Commission the highest national defense organization in China, which is in charge of direction, directing China's armed forces. How does this typical
0: scientific collaboration between a Central European research center or university with China look like? Who usually initiates the contact? What does it really mean to be funded
1: by China? And more importantly, do you think there is a risk involved? Well, we were interested in those questions as well. So what we in the end did that we not only looked at the number of research outputs which were published because or thanks to Chinese funding, either partial or full funding, but we actually came up with a nail list of researchers from the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Austria, who authored those papers. So who at least theoretically, because sometimes there were research teams involved, not, not single researchers, who at least theoretically were funded by China. So we have a name list, but we decided to anonymize this name list. So we haven't put any data, any, any names, any data which could lead to identification of specific department or a laboratory or an individual researcher. We have not published that. But we do have a list, so we decided to basically um, contact those researchers and send them online questionnaires, asking exactly the questions you asked. So who initiated the cooperation? And from their responses, not all of them, of course, wanted to respond, so the response rate was quite uh, different in different countries. But altogether, from their responses, we drew a conclusion that it was mostly the Chinese side who initiated the cooperation. So China is in the driving seat of um, scientific collaboration between Central Europe and China. And we also ask questions about um, whether the researchers are aware of the risks which may be associated with cooperation with a Chinese partner, whether these risks may include, let's say, theft of intellectual property, or whether these uh, can include that China would actually commercialize the, the research results, or that they may actually have Um, national security implications, because sometimes those areas are very closely tied to dual-use items. Majority of the researchers, at least those who responded, said that they do not see any problem with the cooperation with China, that they are not aware of any of those uh, problematic areas.
0: Have you spoken to the researchers uh, whose uh, research was funded by the um, Thousand Talents program?
1: Well, we have not. Uh, As I said, we contacted them by online questionnaires. We are not investigative journalists. We, as I said, decided not to publish the names of the researchers, not to um, be involved in any kind of naming and shaming campaign. Um, I'm not saying that we may not in the end uh, not do that, but our logic of work, work is really that we focus on China and China itself and not necessarily on hunting down the researchers who decided for various reasons that they would like to um, to publish uh, their research results thanks to Chinese funding.
0: But do you know what kind of
1: research was funded by this agency? Yes, we know exactly what kind of research that was. What are China's STI priorities and China's goals in Europe? China is not... Especially secretive about what kind of technologies it still can't produce domestically, and it would like to acquire abroad through various means. These means could be actually legitimate means, such as investment into technology companies. Um, it could be it could be done also through technology transfers, which are agreed up and on. Um, but this could be also done through illegitimate means, such as intellectual property rights thefts or uh, commercially uh, driven espionage. And then there are grey zones, corporations such as this one, where you do see Chinese funding actually pouring into various areas. But um, the question mark over whether the research local researchers are actually aware of the fact that they do contribute to China's modernization, including possibly the modernization of People's Liberation Army. That's, um, of course, not that much known. There are numerous Chinese policy documents actually talking about various STI uh, priority areas. We have specifically looked at one document which forecasts what China may need by 2035. That's a Chinese document. And we came up with a list of 15 priority areas, which include artificial intelligence, quantum information, integrated circuits, um, neuroscience, genetics, biotechnology, clinical medicine and health, um, aerospace engines and gas turbines and so on. Do you think the
0: measures that are currently in place to mitigate the attempts to acquire foreign technology and
1: safeguard the research are sufficient? Unfortunately, we don't think so. To start with, the systems of export controls were designed for trade exchange in military and nuclear material and dual-use goods. They do seem inadequate in addressing the current phase of rapid technological process, so they do not, for example, include emerging technologies. Moreover, the necessity to import various components from different countries to create the final product makes a formulation of export controls quite arduous job. Similarly, targeting emerging technologies in the investment screening legislation has been quite limited because it focuses on relatively narrow scope of dual-use technologies directly applicable for military end-use while leaving out other potentially risky areas. So to sum it up, basically, we do not see the current measures which would target emerging technologies as sufficient. China's quest for foreign technologies
0: is quite known. So, what motivates these researchers to inter-collaboration with China? Are they not afraid of intellectual property theft?
1: Well, Kara, it is quite known to China watchers. It's quite known to security community. It's quite known to people who who basically do feel the, um, the necessity to protect their intellectual property rights. It's not so much known to scientists in natural science, I would argue. It's not that much known in Central and Eastern Europe. So on one hand, I would probably harshly say that there is a great deal of naivete on the side of um, scientists um, in this region when it comes to cooperation with China. So that's one point. The second would be that sometimes, and that's one of the arguments of the researchers, sometimes they cannot or don't want to apply to funds through the national schemes or through international schemes, because that's quite an arduous job. You spend a lot of hours, countless hours actually, on filling in form after form. And in in the very end, you may not get funded uh, as well. Chinese funding schemes are way easier, less bureaucratized. So it may be more um, attractive for researchers to actually cooperate uh, with, with China. And last but not least, as the researchers argue again, Um, in some of the areas, China actually is either leading or is on the way to lead. Um, And that's areas could include quantum physics, for example, or artificial intelligence. So if the researchers would like to stay on top of the curve, they actually have to have an international cooperation. And Chinese scholars are, let's say, top 10 scholars in those areas. So There has to be some kind of sober assessment of the cooperation needs of the local researchers and the local science community and also the risks which may be associated with uh, cooperation, which is done without any uh, awareness of the risks. So you're saying that
0: collaboration with China is not necessarily dangerous or to be avoided. So what are some ways to better protect European research?
1: Exactly. We are not saying that every single cooperation project with China is dangerous. In fact, majority of them would be going into quite harmless areas. What we try to say is that those areas of research has to be Um, screened or has to be actually thought about before the cooperation starts. There are a lot of areas which don't have military use, for example, per se, so they would not be banned or prohibited through various, let's say, export controls. But some of them could actually have potential military applications. So there has to be a sober assessment, really, of What kind of measures should be applied and what kind of areas should be restricted for cooperation with China? I would like to give one practical practical example. For example, um, the oceanographic research, which focuses on mapping the seabed and the salinity of water and so on, doesn't have military implications on the first sight, But it can actually be used by the military for moving their submarines. So there has to be really a very specific, narrow focus on what it is that China wants. And here comes a catch, because most of the current measures, which are applied not only in the United States, but more specifically in European Union, are actor agnostic. So they shy away from mentioning China or any other problematic actor um, for the fear that China may retaliate against the companies, against the science sector and so on the problem is and that has been cited by researchers a lot of times if you talk about some unknown threat to your research in areas where which are very vaguely defined and which put the burden of identification to you so the states are actually saying to the researchers you have to protect your crown jewels you have to protect your key research but the researchers has no idea have no idea what kind of Of threat they're actually facing. So for uh, social sciences, key research could be something else than for, for, let's say, physics or quantum physics and so on. So we argue that what is necessary is not to shy away from mentioning China directly. We do need actor agnostic approach, but we also need actor-specific guidelines for universities, research centers and individual researchers. So they would know exactly that China is interested in those 15 key areas, and these areas should be specifically protected.
0: Do you think the action should be taken on at the European level or at the national level?
1: Well, so far, the action has been there, but it was very, very slow. And as I said, actor agnostic. So any entity which would like to move forward is actually welcome, I think. And there is a lot of space for European Union, from national for national governments, but also for local universities themselves to actually um, raise awareness of this problem and introduce any kind of measure. Because as, as I said, so far, the knowledge pool is relatively leaking.
0: Do you think that the fact that European Union prefers actor agnostic guidelines stems from the fact that Europe is trying to balance being a rival, partner and competitor to China all at the same time. Um, Do you think
1: that this China policy is sustainable? I think that over the past two or three years, the European Union has been moving towards leaving this um, tri-sector of relations with China, towards seeing China more as um, a rival rather than a partner or just a competitor. Of course, this uh, distinction is still quite valid and it's probably going to hold. But in reality, what I do see is that the European Union started to be less naive or more um, willing towards understanding the moves People's Republic of China has been doing under the leadership of Xi Jinping. So nevertheless, um, what I do see is that there would probably be a complementarity between actor agnostic approach, which would be uh, something advocated by the European Commission for obvious reasons, something advocated by various member states, towards also moving to actor-specific measures. Because China, and let's face it, China is quite a different actor in science, technology and innovation than all the other actors. China has, is not declaratorily only saying that it wants to be the leader in technologies by 2049, but it's also pouring pouring enormous financial resources into achieving it. So it is a challenge like no other in the science.
0: But your report shows that only one. of the respondents would be open to some sort of um, involvement of the national authorities, some sort of support. Why do you um, recommend these kind of guidelines um, despite the reluctance of the researchers themselves?
1: Well, first of all, the researchers who responded to those questions were researchers who actually actively collaborated with China. So I will put it—I would put some grain of salt into those responses. But it's a very valid question because, specifically, in Central and Eastern European countries, which had the historical experience with the state penetrating universities and research centers during the communist era and actively screening people working there and basically saying what kind of research is is, um, advisable and what kind of research is not and so on. So the local universities and research centers are um, very reluctant to be guided by the states and they do insist on their autonomy. So any kind of measures which would be applied in the science area, would have to get research centers and universities and individual researchers on board. So, there could not be, there should be, of course, some kind of um, guidance provided by the state because the universities don't have capacities to do, them, do that themselves. But on the other hand, universities and research centers have to be taken on board as collaborative partners. Otherwise, any kind of guideline which will come from third party would be taken as another unnecessary bureaucratic burden. And the universities and research centers would perhaps apply those guidance, but just in a very formal way. And it would not lead into securing or protecting the science sector more.
0: Don't you fear that more regulation in this area will drive away funding opportunities for research in Central Europe?
1: not necessarily um if the researchers um understand that there it is in their interest to secure let's say the crown jewels or the key research they have because other partners would be reluctant to work with them if their you know laboratories are open to anyone and they are currently open to basically almost anyone any any foreign national it is in the interest of the local universities, research centers, and individual researchers to protect their science findings. If they do have cooperation with the Chinese partners, for example, there may be a risk of other partners, international partners, such as, let's say, um, Japan or the United States, that they would be reluctant to work with those specific laboratories because of the fear of um, leaking of the research results towards People's Republic of China. What could be done more to
0: research this topic? What are some areas that would be worth exploring further in the next rounds of research?
1: Well, first of all, what could be done is to enlarge the scope of the research we did or um, similar research which has been done on mapping the scope of cooperation between China and various EU member states. So that would be the first uh, start or the first move I would actually start with to look at the problem and acknowledge that there, there, there actually there is a problem and that's quite a grave problem. So that would be the first uh, thing to do. Um, the second would be to provide practical tools for universities, research centers and individual researchers on what to do with in cooperation with Chinese partners. So far there is no due diligence done or at least I'm not aware of any tool which would help researchers to do due diligence apart from the ASPI tracker, which is useful, of course, but it's not mapping the opportunities of cooperation. It's focusing specifically on the risks of cooperation with um, the specific universities which has ties to Chinese military. So what I would argue for is to have some kind of specific tool which would help the researchers to navigate this um, arena, And last but not least, we have to really focus more specifically on China. We have to address the elephant in the room. So actor agnostic approach is, as I said, valid, but we do need to focus on China more specifically because its global reach, its far-reaching goals, increasingly revisionist agenda and the nature of the political regime make China a risk and a challenge like no other. And on a very practical level, we also have to redefine the sensitive. So the majority of the currently published guidelines use the term sensitive research, which generally concerns dual use and military material. But there are more areas where what could actually constitute um, sensitive. So recently, the European Union uh, discussed the use, ethical use, of research findings. for example, in the contents of the use of artificial intelligence for facial recognition. So we have to enlarge this area of what it, it is actually that's sensitive. And we would probably have to move towards drawing red lines, actually saying where cooperation with Chinese partner partners is okay, where it is non-problematic, where it actually may be problematic under certain circumstances, so due diligence uh, should be done. And what are the red lines, where the cooperation can actually um, harm us as Europeans, harm our competitiveness in the future, or can um, provide tools for oppression, for example, in China or in other countries. And one of the very practical um, recommendations probably would be to draw inspiration from the Netherlands, uh, which just established, I think, this year, um, at the very beginning of this year, just establish a national contact point which help universities and research centers with due diligence. Um, The current uh, trend in Central Europe is to advocate for having contact points at each and every university and research center. Um, What this contact point would actually do in the context of Central Europe, I'm not quite sure because it would be still a contact point at the level of university, um, and whether that contact point would have a reach towards intelligence services or towards um, towards um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which can provide some kind of knowledge on uh, Chinese partners as well, I'm a little bit skeptical on that. So most likely what would happen uh, if those national contact points are established in, at each and every university would be that it, that would be just the formal criteria. Um, fulfilled by the local universities to show that they do take this challenge seriously. On the other hand, if those countries establish one single um, national point for for each of the country, that national point can actually have an access to intelligence community, it, it can have an access to, to the government, and so on. And that would, of course, uh, be even less costly, right, than to establish number of contact points across the country. So I would probably advocate for looking more closely into the Dutch experience uh, with a contact point which has been around for a couple of months and to see whether there may not be some kind of practice which could be emulated by other countries as well.
0: Thank you so much, Ivana, for talking about your policy paper with us today. Before we say goodbye, so I have one final question for you. What would be your advice to young China scholars?
1: Oh, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, so for young China scholars in general, probably not those focusing just just on cooperation between uh, um, their countries and China in science, technology, and, and innovation. So in general, I would probably encourage them to to focus on China really, because China is not going anywhere. It's going to stay as the main challenge for the West, um, for the decades to come, I believe. So there is plenty of room for anyone focusing on China. Um, So I would encourage them to continue in their studies, to uh, improve their language capacities and capabilities. Of course, that may not be very easy um, currently with China um, under lockdowns, but there are other countries, of course, where Chinese language could be studied. So, yes, uh, I would welcome them.
0: On that note, if you are a young professional or a student from Europe, interested in China or China's relations with Europe, you can submit your latest work to CHOICE as part of our Future Choice initiative. For more information, check our website www.chinaobservers.eu. Happy to have spoken with you, Ivana. Thank you.
1: It was a pleasure, Kara. Thanks for having me.
0: This was Voice for Choice. If you would like to know more about our work, please do visit our website at chinaobservers.eu. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We hope you'll make the right choice, and tune in for the next episode of Voice for Choice.